Look at that. Okay, as we begin chapter 7, as we work our way through Isaiah, the first five chapters lay out for us a concept that kind of is our pretext, the pretext of the context, you guys with me? The concept behind the book, first five chapters, how does that Israel become this Israel? How are these people on one hand who are... Um, you know, messing up all the time, going to become this glorious city that God keeps pointing at, that's, that's got all these blessings, all this amazing stuff going on in it. So how does this Israel become that Israel? Chapter 6 answers the question. Chapter 6 is when Isaiah personally, individually, has a face-to-face meeting with the Lord, and God purges his sin, right? He touches him, he cleanses him, from the inside out. So that's the key. How's this Israel become that Israel? How does this Jackie become that Jackie? How do we, how are we transformed in our life from where we are to where we want to be? We're transformed by a touch of the master's hand. That's the first six chapters. That's what it's laying out for us. Now, 7 to 39, so from chapter 7 to chapter 39 deals with this issue. Learn to trust God not everything else. Because that's going to be a struggle for Israel. In chapter 7, what we're going to see is there's a threat. The threat in the land in chapter 7 is Syria. Syria, uh, um, we find Israel's all afraid, they're all shook up about this possible war that's going to happen. And God's going to tell them in the beginning, it's not going to happen. Why are you guys freaking out? But that's their focus. I want you to understand, God's going to give them a word saying, hey, don't worry about that, trust in me. And they're going to choose to put their trust in a little known country at the time called Assyria. So don't get confused. Syria, like the Syria that we have in existence today, Assyria we don't have. But Assyria was one of the uh, world kingdoms that came along prior to the time of Babylon. So Assyria was a very wicked people. So Israel's going to reach out to Assyria, not God. They're going to reach out to Assyria for help. And God's going to let them know, you don't trust me, but you're trusting them, and they're the ones who are going to brutalize you. So the things that men go to, that mankind runs to, that the nation goes to, is not running to the Lord, it's running to something else. You can substitute anything for Assyria, right? You can substitute uh, incredible financial plans. You can substitute some kind of a, a, I don't know, plea agreement or deal or whatever. Anything that is not going to God. Saying, Lord, I'm, gonna, I'm trusting you. You know, you guide me. You show me. And allow the Lord to lead us through whatever that is. So we have a tendency, I think, if we're honest, to make a plan first. And start down the plan, and then we remind ourselves, whoa, did we pray about this? We ask God about this? Did we seek the Lord? Are you guys with me? So this is going to be kind of the subject for the next, you know, 32 chapters. We're all, we're going to be dealing with this idea. Different examples of God saying, trust me, and the people trusting in or hoping in something else. And this story that I'm kind of, um, you know, Bringing out in the beginning of chapter 7 is going to run through 7, 8, and 9. Those three chapters all go together. We won't get through them all. But 7, 8, and 9 are, are dealing with the same concept and the same story. And you're going to recognize it because 
in the background of this story, there's another story being written as our hope. Remember, Isaiah is going to talk about God's judgment and and how this Israel is failing the Lord, but we, we want this Israel to become that Israel. And along the way, he's going to sow in the background little pictures of hope. And one of those pictures of hope you guys have heard every Christmas, right? For unto us is born a child, right? This is Isaiah 7.14 is one of our uh, most common scriptures that are going to come out at Christmas time. Although for them, it has a little bit different, uh, different flavor, different meaning. So let's take a look at it. It says in, uh, in verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remelah, the king of Israel, came up against Jerusalem. So you've got a divided kingdom, north from south. Israel against Judah. Israel has gotten together with Syria to Israel, like the civil war has occurred, Israel split in two. So the northern kingdom, which has never really walked with God, they're going to get together with another enemy of Judah, and they're going to come against Judah. And Judah's a little afraid. They're a little freaked out by this possibility. But listen to what the Lord says. It says, The king of Israel came up against Jerusalem to wage war against it. But what's the next phrase? (laughs) But he could not mount an attack. So nothing has happened. What we know is there's a treaty between Israel and Syria. And they're ultimately going to be destroyed by Assyria here shortly. And what you have is a lot of fear about that deal. A lot of fear about what's going to happen, what's going to come. Uh, sometimes, you guys ever notice, sometimes our fear is doesn't, doesn't always make sense. So some of you guys weren't born in 2000, were you? <laughs> No, maybe. And if you remember, in 1999, there was a crazy amount of fear about what? Why? You guys didn't go buy a bunch of wheat, did you? Well, you guys were all smarter than me. I went and bought a bunch of wheat, and I have no idea what I was going to do with it. I moved it to three different houses, finally threw it away. Um, But we had this, this crazy fear that said, okay, everything's computerized. The computers can't make the switch to, to the year 2000. All the computers are going to crash. Life's going to end. Stores are going to close. Hospitals will stop working. Okay. Now we laugh about it, but I had. <laughs> you did what? Wheat. Not weed. <laughs> what would I do with weed? Okay. Just so you guys know, if you're hungry, eating weed is not going to help you. I guess it might make you think, well, I don't really care about being hungry, but at least when I used to do that, you got the munchies, and that was always a problem. No, wheat, wheat, kernels of wheat, you grind it and make bread. <laughs> so, yes, I, I am familiar with the product, however, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. So, so the idea is we had this irrational fear, and that irrational fear led us to do a lot of weird things, and then we did a lot of weird things, and then the year 2000 came and absolutely nothing happened. Even my old junky computer did nothing happen to. Sometimes our fears are irrational, and we get afraid about things, and all the while God is saying, why are you worried about that and not trusting in 
Me. Just trust me. One of the promises, God doesn't give us a promise that we're never going to go through hard things. That promise is not in the Bible. God does promise to give us everything we need for all of life's journeys along the way. So if God's going to have you walk through something that's hard or difficult, he'll, He promises to give you the strength. He promises to strengthen you. We, uh, we have this concept we talk about sometimes uh, here at Calvary Chapel Buell about being first church of the broken. And I know, I know everybody doesn't like the, the concept, but listen to this. Paul said, I would rather rejoice in my brokenness so that the so God could be glorified because he said when I am weak he is strong right so trusting in God hey Lord I want to trust in you not in me not in my own wisdom not in somebody else's plan I want to trust in you and that's what's happening in Judah so Judah they're going to watch the northern kingdom be destroyed they're going to watch Assyria do all this stuff but but they're going to have a hiccup along their journey before they get conquered by Babylon. And that is, rather than trusting God, they're going to trust the same people who are wiping everybody out. Our fears drive us to do dumb things. A great song on the radio now that fears a liar. We know that to be true. It's a liar. That's so a little bit of truth, right? If you ride a motorcycle and you go around the corner, there's a little bit of truth in the fear. If I fall, this is going to hurt. That's true. But your fear drives you to do what you're afraid of. It locks you up. So you don't behave or respond the way that you need to behave or respond to, to avoid whatever is happening in life. And in Scripture, Scripture calls us, here's how not to get locked up. Trust in me. That's what God's saying. Trust in me don't worry about all this other stuff trust in me so we have this prophecy rooted in history right you, you hear all the kings we know who the players are ahaz is the guy we're concerned with god's going to come to ahaz and say ahaz he's the king of judah king of the southern kingdom trust me ahaz trust me these guys are never going to come to your door they're never going to come look at verse 2 so when the house of david was told Syria is in league with Ephraim. The heart of Ahaz, the heart of his people, shook like trees of the forest, shake before the wind. So now fear is going to drive his decisions. How, now for how many of us, when fear drives our decisions, are our decisions good? It don't work out for me so good. It doesn't work out for me. When, you have two options in life, guys. We have two options of how we're going to walk through life. Fear or faith. If you walk in fear, then you're going to be fear slave forever. I would rather be a slave of faith. I would rather be a slave to trusting in God, even though maybe I still go through difficult things. I'd rather live that way than full of fear, unable to respond or unable to react. And they're simply afraid of what might happen. They're afraid of what might happen. Verse 3, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go meet Ahaz. You and Shear Jeshub, this is one of uh, Isaiah's sons. He, he names his sons unique thing. We're going to talk about one of them in chapter 8. This is Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So once upon a time, when Israel had battles, 
they had to, one of the problems, one of the weaknesses of the city was in order to get water, they had to go outside the city walls. So if somebody sets a siege around Israel, they can choke off your ability to get water into Jerusalem. And so Ahaz is down gathering water, right? There's a siege coming. We need to get a bunch of water in the city while we still can. Later on at the time of Hezekiah, they, they dig something called Hezekiah's Tunnel. They put a guy at the water source, and they put a guy in the city, and they say, dig toward each other. The miracle of Hezekiah's tunnel is it's not straight. It's twisty. If you get a chance to walk through, I've walked through Hezekiah's tunnel probably nine times. And if I had this, if there was other alternate paths in there, I, I would be hopelessly lost. You twist and turn and move all over the place. But they met. The two guys digging met. And that brought water into Jerusalem. So when they were at siege, they didn't have to worry about it. Now at the time of Ahaz, Hezekiah, Hezekiah doesn't come on the scene until chapter 38. So we'll see Hezekiah and him digging his tunnel and all that stuff coming. But right now, Ahaz, he's afraid. So they're gathering water. So God says to Isaiah, go down where they're gathering water. I need you to talk to the king. I need you to go down and talk to him. Speak to him about what's going on. And, he, and the Lord says specifically, bring your son, Shear Jeshub. Shear Jeshub means a remnant shall return. A remnant shall return. Now here's, these are all little seeds sown in these prophecies of judgment that remind us that God has a purpose bigger than what we see on the surface. For though there will come enemies and, and in another couple of hundred years, the, the Jerusalem is going to fall. The Lord is laying out, planting the seed of promise already. There will be a remnant. Paul says in, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, is God done with Israel? No. Has he brought them out? Has he brought them down so that he would destroy them? No. Promises God made, he's going to keep. There will be a remnant. This is the promise of God. And this is in the name of Isaiah's son. God says, specifically, bring this son. So that the name of his boy would be a witness to the king as he shares with him. Verse 4. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, and do not fear. The Bible tells us this over and over and over again, because one of the primary driving forces for men and women is we make choices based on fear. So God has to say over and over and over again, don't be afraid. Walk in faith. Trust me. Don't be afraid. And right before he says, don't be afraid, what's he say? Be quiet. You guys ever have your mind going so fast and so so many thoughts flying through your brain, you couldn't hear nothing if, if somebody was trying to talk to you? I know sometimes if I'm worrying at night, God can't get a word in edgewise. Because I'm running through all these scenarios. You guys ever do that? Just... Scenario after scenario after scenario. What's going to happen if this happens? Oh, if this happens, what do I do? If, what, what's going to happen if that happens? What's going to happen with this? So the second thing that, that Isaiah tells the king, be quiet. How did the psalmist say it? Be still and know what? I am God. That trumps all our fear. Be still and know I am God. There are certain times in your life when you'll face an enemy, maybe a giant, that's so big 
there's really nothing you can do about it. It's way easier to trust in God in those situations than to try to come up with a plan. Try to come up with a concept. And oftentimes, I think in our lives, God will bring us to those places to help remind us. Stop being afraid. Trust in me. I got you. And if that's a road I'm going to walk you through, I'm going to give you what you need to do it. You don't have to be afraid. Be quiet. Be still. And know that I am Lord. The first thing he said to him, be careful. Ahaz, you're right on the cusp. Right on the cusp of a crossroads. Be careful. Be quiet. Don't be afraid. These are all the things that are driving his decision. And then do not let your heart be faint. Because of two smoldering stumps. These these nations aren't even a fire. Whenever God talks about fire, he's talking about a judgment. He's saying, these, these, this is not a judgment. These guys aren't coming. They're just smoking. Smoke, we always say this, where there's smoke, there's fire. Sometimes. I've had some campfires where I'm not sure you could call that a fire. I am pretty sure you could call it smoke signals. How many of us like to just sit around that big smoldering campfire that's just blowing smoke everywhere? Isn't it a pleasure? We sit there and we try to talk to each other while we try to clear the smoke out of our eyes so that we can see. None of us are sitting around that fire afraid of the fire right now. We might be irritated by the smoke. And this is what God said. You don't have to be afraid. There's no fire here. There's no fire. It's just smoldering stumps. Don't be afraid of the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria and Ephraim, that's another word for the northern kingdom Israel, um, the son of Ramalia have devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tahil as king in the midst of it. So he's saying, here's the things that you're afraid of. And God's saying, don't be afraid of this. It's not going to happen. These things are not going to happen. He's going to declare on this concept we've heard before. Don't be afraid. Know this. The truth will set you free. Fear will put you in bondage. Don't you fear, feel like when you're in fear, you're chained up? Like everything I'm doing is a reaction to something. Not... It's I'm 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 just reacting to all these events happening around me instead of just walking in the peace of God. Even though maybe I'm still walking that same route, He's saying, "Don't be afraid. These plans that they have, they're not going to come to anything. These other kings have announced their plans. We're going to come get you. Shenekarib's going to come up in a in a few chapters, which is always a fun name to say. Shenekarib. I don't know why people don't." Name their children Shenekarib today. Just rolls off the tongue. Shenekarib is going to stand outside of Judah and say, Man, we're going to wipe you out. We're going to take you down. We're going to destroy you. they got all this talk. But at that time, the king will be Hezekiah. And God's going to say to Hezekiah, Don't be afraid of him. Don't be afraid of what he says. He's not going to even be here tomorrow. You don't have to be afraid. They're making all this noise. But it's the king of kings. When the king of kings responds, that's what we need to listen to. When the Lord is calling us to alter, to change our course, to repent, to not be afraid. Those are the things we need to listen to. Not all the other stuff. 
But sometimes it's so much easier to see what's going on in, in all those other things, to be afraid of all those other things, rather than trusting the Lord. So he says in verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Or let's back up. Verse 7, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. The head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is resin. That's Syria. <clears throat> Within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. So in, a, in a one man's lifetime, basically in one man's lifetime, all these things you're afraid of are going to be gone. Nobody's going to be afraid of them anymore because they won't exist. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria, the son of Ramalia. If you are firm in your faith, or if you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. So right now Ahaz, the things that are driving you is your fear. But if you allow faith to drive you, you can have a, 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 a resolute spirit. I remember sitting in the, the hospital. I was in the hospital the day... <clears throat> Cindy, who was my pastor's wife in California, the day she got the news, she had pancreatic cancer. And I was there for the first word she said after they told her, you have pancreatic cancer, and I don't remember the time frame, but it wasn't very long. Like, you got a couple of weeks or a couple of months that you can expect to live, but this cancer is going to take you quick. And the first words out of her mouth was, I want to be a good witness. Because she wanted to walk in faith, not fear. Now she died. That, the, the cancer took her life, but it did not take her witness. Because she made a decision. I'm going to walk in faith. I'm going to trust God. And it was very uh, encouraging and helpful to a whole body. The church in, in California is pretty big, a couple thousand people. Um, and the whole church is thinking, oh my gosh, you know, how could such a horrible thing happen to the pastor's wife? Because a pastor and his wife are supposed to be immune from all bad things, right? So how could something like this happen? It was a great testimony to everyone, the fact that God didn't heal her, God didn't take it away, and she walked by faith to her last day. There's a lot to be said for that. Sometimes we can learn a whole lot more by how someone dies. Or how someone lives in the fear of death until, until their race is finished. We can see that faithfulness. And this is what God's saying to Ahaz. Ahaz, none of this is going to happen. Don't be afraid. Trust me. Whatever you need for the, for the journey, I have. But if you won't walk by faith, you will be weak. Tossed around by every wave, the wind, the storm's going to blow you all over the place, and you can't stay on track because you let fear rule instead of giving space to the Lord God. Now, verse 10, he says, And the Lord said to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord God. Now, in a moment, this is going to sound pious. You guys know what pious means? Uh, this is going to sound religious. Sometimes, if I'm honest, I get annoyed by religious answers. You guys know what I mean? Like, uh, this is just what we say in church. We, this is the phrase we say. <laughs> it has no meaning behind it, just words. 
We're going to see a pious answer, a religious answer. Uh, King Ahaz is going to say, oh Lord, I don't, want to, I don't want to test you. That's not what it means. It's not, it's not a pious man who's walking in faith saying, Lord, I, I don't want to test you. It's an unfaithful man saying when God says, blank check, tell me what you want. And he says, no, no, I, I'm not, I, don't, I don't want to write that check. That's a totally different deal. There's one thing the Bible says not to test the Lord, but there are times where God says, test me. You guys ever heard those? Malachi 3.10, a lot of people talk about that. Test me in this. And Malachi 3 is all about tithing, giving to the Lord. And the Lord says, you don't think you can? You don't think you have the money to tithe? Test me in this. You give and watch what I give back. It's, it, is, it is a pious thing to look at the Lord in that situation and say, Oh, no, Lord, I, I, won't, I don't want to do that. I, I don't want, that's, that is choosing my fear rather than my faith. Right? You guys get what I'm saying? There are times where God calls us. Try me. Test me. See if this is what I may. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as the grave or as high as the heavens. Anything God is saying to King Ahaz, ask, and I'll give it to you. What do you want? Solomon was asked this question when he was a young man, eight or twelve, I don't remember. Solomon, what what can I give you? Ask a sign of me. What what can I give you, Solomon? What do you want? Solomon didn't say, Lord, no, Lord, I don't want to ask you for anything. What did Solomon say? Hey, I want to be wise enough to rule your people. And God says, well, you know what, Solomon says, you didn't ask for money. And you didn't ask for, for power. And you didn't ask for peace. But you asked for wisdom. I'm going to give you wisdom. And I'm going to give you all the things you didn't ask for. And I'm going to call you much beloved of God, Jedediah. God wants us. To, especially when he says, try me in this. He wants us to have the faith to say, Lord, this is what I want. This is nothing wrong with walking in faith and saying, God, this is what, you, what I want. I want you to take this away. Oh, no, you can't ask that. What do you mean? Jesus did. Jesus stood in the, in the or knelt in the garden of Gatshmone, the, the olive press. Gethsemane, he got there and he said, Lord, if there be any other way, let it be. Yeah, uh, if there's another way, you know, I'd like, I'd like the, the, the other plan if that's, if that's possible. But then what did he say? But nevertheless, not my will, but yours. I'm here to do the will of my Father. It's okay to ask God. God doesn't then say... To his son, oh my gosh, that's a lack of faith. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. That's not a lack of faith. That's responding to God. Talking to God. Being real and honest and true with God. You know, Lord, I, we prayed for... I think Cindy lived for almost... Uh, actually, better than a year. Not, not, uh, not quite a year and a half. And we never stopped praying for healing. But sometimes God says no. So, this is what I'd like, Lord. But nevertheless, 
You do what you do and I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. King Ahaz, tell me what you want. I'll give you a sign, any sign. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. That's what I mean. Oh, that sounds so pious. Not pious. It was unfaithful. It was an unfaithful response. God said, ask. He wouldn't do it. So, in verse 13, he said, this is Isaiah, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Here God is offering a a blank check for you. Try me. I want to show how faithful I am. But you're so afraid of men that you won't trust God. This is, in some ways, the definitive end of the house of David. Let me say it this way. This is the definitive end of the human house of David. From this point forward, we're going to see a decline. A couple of hopeful things, but we're going to see a decline. But in the same place where you have this question raised by the prophet, hey, you, you, this is, is, is this the failure of the house of David? You're going to have a promise that points to the real king. Right? The real king that will come. In verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Okay, God will show you. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now that sounds familiar to us, right? The problem is, most of the time at Christmas, we don't read the rest of this chapter. We just read that part, and then we say things like, Man, how could Israel be so lame not to see this? Well, because as far as Israel is concerned, this happened. This occurred in the time of Isaiah. This is a promise to Isaiah. It's not until we come to the gospel and Matthew points back at it and says, this was what was sown. This was the promise of God sown in the foreshadowing of Isaiah. Remember how we've been talking? That Israel becomes this Israel. How's it all going to happen? You have this foreshadowing. Because this verse, these things cannot be said of a human. There's not going to be a human at the time of Isaiah that they call God with us. But there will be one in the line of David who will be faithful, who will be the king of kings and the lord of lords. This is being sown in that, in that background from Isaiah. But don't close yourself off to the rest because there was a meaning for the people Isaiah is standing in front of, right? He's telling people right there, hey guys, this, here's the sign God's going to give you. In their lifetime, it's going to be fulfilled. Look at, the, look at the chapter. Look what he says. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. But before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land in whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now, that happens in the time of Isaiah. He's saying there's going to be a child born. Now, maybe every year at Christmas we have these different arguments that arise about, well, is, does this, is this really talking about a virgin that shall conceive? Well, it is, actually. The Hebrew word is Alma, but because the Hebrew word Alma is used here, <coughs> it leaves the door open. Alma means maiden. Now, typically a maiden was virgin, but that's not the point. 
The point for the people standing in front of Isaiah is this will be your sign. A woman's going to have a child. And before that child knows the difference between right or wrong, these two kings that you're so afraid of are going to be gone. That actually happens. And the fulfillment of that actual prophecy is Isaiah's other son will meet in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 4. If you guys want to look at 8.4, just real quick, here's what it says in, in Isaiah 8.4. Remember I told you this is all the same context, 7, 8, and 9. We're all talking about the same thing. And we'll see a lot of, of that, that little layer of hope sown in it, right, for future. Again, in, in, in Isaiah 9.6. Isaiah 8.4 says, Before the boy knows how to cry, father or mother. Now how long does that take? Well, every time a child's born, what do we what do we try to get him to say? If if we're to dad, we say, Papa or Dada. If we're to mom, we try to get him to say, You guys don't know this? You just don't want to sound like me. Mama. What what the prophet is saying is before this child, this this woman who's going to conceive a child, this sign that's to the people there, right then. Before the child can say mama or papa, these guys are gone. And you're afraid of them. And that fear is driving all your decisions. And it's causing you not to be transformed by trusting God, but it's causing you to be the Israel that we question. How does that Israel become this one? And it's the same thing in our lives. It's the same thing that happens with us. So he says, before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good now some people say well then that means it'll be before the boys somewhere between the age of 12 and 20 which is a traditional concept of the age of accountability we probably all heard ideas behind that there's really nothing in the bible that teaches that that's all tradition but the concept is nonetheless true right the idea is here before he knows right from wrong before he knows right from wrong. We have the similar thing in the book of Jonah. You guys remember the book of Jonah? The end of the book of Jonah. Jonah's all upset. I knew you were going to save. That's the Assyrians. Those bad people in Nineveh. That's these guys. They're going to get them. That they're trying to trust in. <clears throat> he says, Jonah says, I was mad, Lord. I knew you were going to be merciful to them. And the Lord says, why are you angry? Don't you know there are 10,000, more than 10,000 down there that don't know their right hand from their left? Isn't that another way of saying they don't know right from wrong or they haven't said mama or papa yet? Why do you want me to judge? God's never in a hurry to judge, ever on scripture, never in a hurry. He's long-suffering, desiring that everyone would repent, that all would repent and come to faith and trust in him. So he says in verse 17, The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. That's civil war. When the north divided from the south. When the kingdom was broken after Solomon. He says, I'm going to bring something to Judah that, that you've never seen since the split of the kingdom. What's, what's the word? There's one word after that. Assyria. Now is it really God that's going to bring Assyria? Well, ultimately, yes, God is the sovereign. The sovereign doesn't mean God's the one that makes all the choices. It means that God's the one over the whole world. He's sovereign. He's the king. He's it. He's the responsible one. He says, I'm, this, Assyria is going to come. 
This fear, we're going to read about it when we get to chapter 38. This fear that you have about Syria and, and Israel, that's going to pass away before a child grows from birth to being able to say, uh, Mama or Papa are no right from wrong. They're going to be gone. You're not going to be afraid. But the people you're going to run to rather than running to me, the people whom you're going to put your hope in rather than putting your hope in me, they're going to come to destroy you. Because whatever we trust that's not trusting in God is going to be something to our destruction. No matter what it is. doesn't mean it, it can't even be a, a good thing. Sometimes the things we trust are the good gifts of God rather than the good gift giver. So we're going to trust in those rather than Him. But they can become our destruction. Those very things that we're putting our hope in. We, our hope needs to be in in the Lord God Almighty. Our hope needs to be in Him for all the things that are coming uh, and working through. So, remember I said, when we back up to chapter or to verse 14, it says that, that Isaiah used the word Alma. He could have used the word Betula. Betula is absolutely the word that would always be used of a virgin, but it wouldn't have worked for the time of Isaiah. So, for something to have... Uh, meaning to the people of Isaiah, and for something to be a pointer to Matthew, to say, look, this is what Isaiah was talking about. This was in the foreshadowing of his prophecy, that a virgin would conceive. How do I know that Alma means virgin? Well, it almost always, in, in every connotation, is, is sympathetic toward the concept of virgin. But I know it is, because when the Septuagint, in 270 B.C., was translated, the Hebrew to the Greek... They use the word parthenos. The word parthenos is virgin. Not a, there's no question. Their view, the way they saw Alma, was a virgin will conceive, which was normal because normally it was a virgin who was a young maiden who would then get pregnant and have a child. At the time of Isaiah, it could still carry that meaning. That's why you have the the concept, the discrepancy that we argue about, you know, 3,000 years later and fight over, was Isaiah saying, this is going to be a very natural occurrence in our life, but he's painting out the foreshadowing of a promise of Messiah who's going to come that's more miraculous. Yeah, a virgin will conceive. And that child you will call, what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. What, what does that mean to Isaiah's crowd? When this child is born... His name, I don't remember his name, Mahal, Shear, something, something. There's four, four names in, in his name. You see it in chapter 8. But when this child, is, when this child comes, what, it, what is it establishing for Isaiah? God's still here. God's with us. God didn't go nowhere. Because of our fear, God didn't abandon us. God's still here. God is with us. And Isaiah's young son in chapter 8, I think, is the near fulfillment, the far fulfillment, the one that they couldn't connect the dots to because they saw it fulfilled in their lifetime. So when people would read it for the next 400 years, they'd go back and say, yeah, that happened. That happened. It's not until Matthew, when Matthew says, hey, remember this part of that? This part that we kind of didn't really address in that earlier prophecy, the idea of God with us? God in human form, a virgin, a miraculous birth, that idea, yeah, it's here now. It's here now. That's why there are those kind of questions. That other child's name is Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. 
which is a, long, a mouthful, right? His name means the spoil speeds and the prey hastens. That's a long name to name a child. But he's the one in chapter 8 where they say, before he says mama and papa, it's going to happen. The, the idea is the prophet points to that child's life and says, this is, this is that child. The conception of a child, naturally a conception of a child that's going to bring forth this promise. So we see that fulfillment there right before their eyes. Later on, we're going to see Matthew point back to it. And then the prophet goes on in verse 18 to say, now here's the real rub. You guys are letting fear drive you. Fear is making your connection. I'm telling you that there's nothing to be afraid of because before... <clears throat> before any of these things can happen, the, the threat will be gone. But the one that you run to is going to become the razor. The people you trust in, rather than trusting in me, are going to be the one that bring disgrace on you. They're going to bring, they're going to bring that disgrace. Look at verse 18. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly, is at the end of the streams of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rock and on the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. Assyria is coming. The, the, the people you think will be your friends are not going to be your friends. They're not the ones that you can trust in. So the Lord says they're going to come to devastate the land. <clears throat> Where you have vineyards now, there's going to be briars and brambles, which means people are going to be moved out of the land. Verse 20, in that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head, the hair of the feet, and it will sweep us away the beard as well. It's a symbolic description of the disgrace that will happen when Assyria comes. Assyria was not a kind, happy friend to have. And this is going to be tradition that's going to occur over and over in Israel. Okay, Right now, Syria, with no A, is a threat. So they go to Assyria for help. Assyria is the real threat. They ask for help from Assyria, and Assyria is going to come and conquer them. So the one they looked for to help, rather than God, conquers them. But just in case you didn't learn from that time, the next one will be Babylon. Assyria is oppressing us. Assyria is oppressing us. Rather than trusting in God, they're going to trust in Babylon. You ever heard of a guy named Nebuchadnezzar? Oh, come on. And they're going to invite Babylon. They're going to show Babylon all their wealth and all their riches and try to make friends with Babylon so Babylon will help them. So what happens? They look to Babylon for help, and what's Babylon do? Babylon conquers them. But of course they learn their lesson right. No, because after Babylon... They do the same thing. They, we see them in captivity until the Medo-Persian army. And then after the Medo-Persian army comes the Greeks. And when the Greeks come, the Greeks are oppressing Israel. And Israel is, is afraid of all the things that the Greeks are going to do. So they reach out to a young country who's just kind of getting started and they ask for help. You know who they were? Romans. Do you see a pattern? You see a pattern, I'm afraid of an enemy, so I reach out to a worse one, and I end up oppressed by that guy. Why? 
because I'm driven by my fear. Well, just in case we don't get it, I see an enemy, I'm afraid of that one, so I reach out to this guy instead of reaching out to the Lord. I make my decisions based on fear, and I end up in a worse position. Oh, wait, let's do it again. I have an enemy, I'm afraid of that enemy, I reach out to somebody I think is going to be a friend. Nope, they're not really a friend. I let fear make my decisions, and I find myself in a greater bondage than I was in before. The history of Israel from this point forward is going to be marked by this reality. I won't trust God, but I will trust whoever could be possibly the worst thing to trust right now. And that's what they're going to do. And the reality is, we do it too. We let fear be the the deciding factor behind our decisions, often, and not trusting in the Lord. And sometimes the thing we run to because of fear is worse. And if we would have just chose to trust God in the first place. This is the battle for the next 32 chapters. God saying, trust me, them saying, no, we want to trust this guy who's going to beat us up. Who's going to tie us up, who's going to make us slaves. God's going to say, don't do that. Why would you do that? Trust me. No, no, we like this guy better. I can see this guy. He's easier. I, don't, I can't see you, God. I have this crazy prophet who shows up. He names his kids four different names. It's the craziest thing I ever saw. A guy who names his kids uh, Spoil Hastens and, and, the, and the Prey. What it go? The Spoil Speeds and the Prey Hastens. That's a mouthful. Spoil Speeds. Pray, hastens, come here. Can you imagine? Spoil speeds. Stop picking on your brother. The remnant shall remain or whatever. Oh, you send somebody like that, Lord. That guy's crazy. Long beard. He has all these crazy things to tell us. We're not going to listen. We're not going to listen. People have been doing that since God said, let there be light. It's not something that doesn't touch our lives too. We have to ask ourselves, am I, are my decisions being driven by my fear? It says in verse 21, In that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk they give, he will eat curds for everyone who is left in the land. One cow will be enough to feed everyone who's left. Because you put your trust in Assyria. That means not very many people are left. Right? You get it? It takes more than one cow probably to, to take care of our needs. So, not, not very many people left in the land. Verse 23, In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver, there will just be briars and thorns, stickers. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. So instead of growing their food, they're going to be, become hunters. Because they, they've been gone so long, the land's gone back to its natural state. It's gone back to its natural state. Yet you will not come there for fear of the briars. You're, you're so afraid of stickers, you won't hunt. The land will go back wild, but you won't go out it. But they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Because you continue to be driven and, and use fear to be the deciding point in your decisions, this is your future. Now, I just want you to hear this. It doesn't become their future. At least not as early as it could have been. Why? Because they get a king. They get a king named Hezekiah who makes this choice. I'm going to trust God. 
and God delivers. And that's the lesson. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to wait for God's deliverance. Or I can live in fear. I can worry about everything. I can go home every night and turn on Fox News to see what horrible thing they've said about the president lately. I can shake in fear over all the decisions that are coming and all the possible ramifications of all those decisions. Or I can choose to trust in God. To pray for my nation and walk in faith. Don't let fear be your motivation. Let faith be the motivation. That's the message of Isaiah for the next 32 chapters. Why does he spend 32 chapters telling us? Because we forget. How long is it going to take you to let fear drive your decision again? (laughs) I don't know. If you're driving home and Rusty gets behind you with a police car, I'll know. If there's that panic look in your eye, like, oh my gosh, was I speeding? I think I was speeding. Uh, I should slam on my brakes right now. Are we going to let fear? We're going to walk in faith. Now, it doesn't mean just speed and have faith that it'll be okay. That's, that's not the same thing. But don't let fear be the driving thing in our life, right? Not fear. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust God. The things that happen in my life, whether they be my fault because of my other choices or not, I'm still going to choose. I'm going to trust you in it. You'll give me what I need to overcome. How many times in the book of Revelation does the Lord say to the church, let he who overcomes, how many times does that happen? I'll tell you, I'm cheating. There are seven letters to seven churches, and he says it seven times. Every time he talks to the church, he says, be an overcomer. And then do you know the same guy who wrote Revelation defined what an overcomer is? First John chapter 5, he says, and this is what overcomes our faith. Trust God. Don't be afraid. Trust God. If you trust Him, you are an overcomer. And fear is a liar. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for this time. Thank You for this, uh, this study, Lord. I pray that we would be intrigued and challenged. And Lord, that You would bring us, God, just to a, a complete... Uh, comprehension of what your word lays out for us. That would be our goal, Lord. I want to know. I want to understand. I want to see what's going on. I want to be able to grapple with it and understand the things that are happening, both near and far. Lord, I want to be able to recognize your truth on the page before me. And I want that truth to transform me, just like the coal that touched Isaiah's lips. God, may your truth transform me so this Jackie becomes that one. So this one who walks in fear learns to walk in faith. And may you be glorified in it and through it. In Jesus' name, amen.